Well, uh, at the beginning of the summer, we started a series of sermons called Life Apps. And uh, over the last couple of weeks, we've taken a break from that. I was gone two weeks ago. And then uh, last week, we celebrated our national birthday with a quick discussion of what it means to be followers of Jesus Christ in a country in which we live and how we live that out in our ultimate allegiances to him. But today we're going to return to that. And for the next few weeks, we're going to finish up the sermon, continuing to talk about those things in our lives that we know we're supposed to do. And yet, for some reason, we sometimes find ourselves lacking in doing them. Now, over the last few weeks, many of you have asked me how I'm doing on my running commitments. And here is my answer. I, like many of you, have succeeded at times and not succeeded at times in fulfilling that commitment, all right? And so I I am working on it. It's not 100%, but I am working on it much more than I was, and I'm putting it into practice more than I have been. And the whole reason we're doing this is because we realize from the book of James that application of what we believe is vitally important to growth in the Christian life. This is the verse that we've used the entire times it comes from the book of James, and it says, Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Don't just listen to it and then think, well, I listened and I'm good. Do what it says. And the point that we have made week after week is that application is everything. That application is everything. And so today, we're going to continue with this understanding of application being everything, and we're going to talk about a subject that, according to studies, is perhaps the least applied directive of God. Anybody ever tell a child to do something and they don't do it? Let me see your hands. Have you ever done that? All right. Anybody ever told a child twice to do something? And they don't do it. Let me, all right? Anybody ever told a child three times, all right? I got some people pointing at their spouses. That's not just not right, all right? Here's what happens at our house. Maybe, maybe we're different, but maybe we're not. At my house, I will say something like, Eli, you need to go pick up your toys in your room. Eli, you need to go pick up your toys. Eli. You need Elijah James Larson. How many times do I have to tell you to go clean up your room? Does that sound familiar to anybody? I, I need support this morning. Does anybody else have that happen? All right. Here's the thing. We're going to talk about something today that I think God looks at us and says, How many times do I have to tell you? Go make disciples. If you look in the Bible, it is a theme throughout the Bible that God wants us to tell other people about him. It goes all the way back to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 12, God says to Abraham, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you have more descendants than you can count. You're going to be more than the stars in the sky, the sands of the sea. And he says in the midst of all of that, the reason is so that you will be a blessing to all nations. 
You come to the book of Exodus where God delivers the Israelites out of bondage. And we think, great for the Israelites. God is doing it for them. And he says, no, I'm doing it so that you, in you, and what I do in you will display my power to all peoples. In the book of Psalms, it talks about the fact that we are to walk in righteousness, that we are to ask God to direct us in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. We get to the prophets, and over and over they talk about what it means to live for the Lord and the fact that doing that will show the other nations how great he is. In Ezekiel 36, God says, listen, all this stuff I'm doing, it is not for your sake, Israel. It is for the sake of my name among the nations. And even at the end of the book, in the book of Revelation, that great and glorious picture of what it's like at the end of time, we see every tribe, tongue, nation gathered around the throne. Now, now just in case we think, well, what did Jesus say about it? There are at least four specific declarations of Jesus. We sometimes talk about the Great Commission, and in fact, we're going to look at it today out of Matthew chapter 28. But the Great Commission is one of several Great Commissions. And what we see in Jesus speaking is that the theme after, especially after everything has happened, he has given his life for the sake of our sins. He has risen again from the grave. His main purpose after that is to tell the disciples, it's now your job to tell people about me. And in Luke chapter 24, he tells them to preach repentance for the forgiveness of sins to all nations. In John chapter 20, he says, As the Father has sent me, so send I you. And in Acts 1.8, something we've built our strategy around of reaching people, he says, You will receive power on high, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. If you've got your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Matthew chapter 28. And in the last words of Jesus in the book, of Matthew, we see what has been called the Great Commission. In a moment, we're going to read that and we're going to dissect it and tear it apart. But what we have to understand is this, is that when you take the whole of Scripture together, when you take everything that Scripture is about from Genesis to Revelation, what you can find is people ask, what is my purpose in life? What is my goal in life? What am I supposed to be doing in life? What am I supposed to do with my life? What is the direction of my life? What am I here for? It can be boiled down into two things. The reason that you're here is to enjoy God's grace and extend God's glory. It is to enjoy God's grace. Now, what I mean by that is it is to enjoy all that God has provided for you. It is to revel in the glory of a God and a Savior who loves us. It is to live life with joy and excitement beyond what anyone else can really imagine. And then, right alongside that, that is to extend God's glory. In Matthew chapter 28, we have this declaration of the Lord of something that we ought to be doing. Verse 16 says this, Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped, but some 
doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. This morning, what I want to do in this passage in helping us to understand what it means that we are to make disciples is I want to answer some questions about what Jesus says. When I was in high school, part of our um, English unit was on journalism. Now, I never intended to be a journalist. I didn't want to write for a paper. And, you know, it seems like that was a pretty good career decision with the way papers are going these days. But one of the things they talked about in journalism class was that there were questions you had to answer for the reader. When you were writing a story, when you were telling something, there were certain questions you had to answer. And they all started with W, except for one started with an H. Remember those questions? Who, what, when, where, how, and why? Who, what, when, where, how, and why? Well, here's the thing. Jesus in Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20, gives us the who, what, when, where, how, and why to making disciples to fulfilling the task that we're called to do. I'm not going to do those in order because it doesn't make sense to do them in order, but we're going to take those questions and we're going to build our understanding around it. And here's what we have to understand. First of all, we have to understand what he's calling us to do. Now, it seems pretty simple. It just says we're called to make disciples. Now, you may have heard this before, but if you look at this passage of Scripture, there is only one verb in the passage. There is only one main verb. That means, you know, in a sentence you have a subject and a verb. The verb is the main action. There is only one here. Now, when you read it in an English translation, it doesn't sound like that. You've got going and baptizing and teaching. Those sounds like verbs. But in the original language, the only real verb here is make disciples. Now, that seems pretty straightforward, except we don't really know what that means. What does that mean? When I was growing up, when I heard the word disciples, the only thing I thought about was discipleship training. That it was something you went to, or I thought about the 12 guys that were around Jesus all the time. What does it mean to make a disciple? How do you do that? What's the formula? Is it like a recipe you can get out of a cookbook and you throw in a little bit of this and a little bit of that and out pops a disciple? In the original language, an understanding of disciple just meant someone who followed a teacher as closely as they could. Here's an interesting thing that's kind of at the heart of this understanding of the word disciple. There is this um, word picture in it of having dust thrown in your face. Now, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to us because we don't live around a bunch of dust. Now, some of us have yards that may not have a lot of grass growing, but we don't drive on dirt much anymore. How many of you have, there's some of you, I'm sure, but how many of you have to drive on a dirt road to get to your house? One. Now, let me just think about this. If I would have asked that question 50 years ago, what do you think it would have been like? Been a lot, right? I remember going to my great-grandparents' house. I remember visiting with them a long time when I was growing up, and we had to go down a dirt road. And you know what happens when you drive on a dirt road? Dust goes everywhere, right? 
Well, now, this isn't what, uh, they, they weren't driving vehicles back in Jesus' day, but their roads were real dusty. And as you walked, and especially if you ran, the dust would fly off your sandals. And the idea of a disciple was someone that was following so closely that they were catching the dust off the sandals of the teacher. Now, here's what that means in real practical terms. It just means that we need to be developing people who walk, talk, think, act, love, care like Jesus. That our goal is to have people who are so closely aligned with Jesus that it's like they're catching the dust off of this being. So who? We answered the what. Now, who? Who are we talking about here? Well, it's as broad as it can possibly be, right? It says, make disciples of Goodlettsville, Tennessee. Is that what it says? Is that what it says? Uh, does it say Nashville? No. Does it say Tennessee? United States? Well, just the people that live in a democracy? What does it say? All nations. It's not an optional thing either. You, you know what's interesting is there are some people that like to pick and choose the parts of Scripture that they see as optional and those they see as universal. For instance, there's a little verse in Matthew eleven twenty-eight that says, Come to me, all you who are weary and need rest. And we think, that is for everybody. But that part about making disciples, that is for a select few. This is for all of us. And what the Bible teaches here is that we are to be people who are consistently thinking globally and locally about making disciples. We just had a team get back last Sunday from Brazil. And, and sometimes some of you will just ask a question just in passing. Well, why do we have to go all the way to Brazil to do missions? There are plenty of needs right around here. My answer to that is twofold. First of all, it's because Jesus tells us to. He has given us a commission as individuals and as churches to go. Now, our choice is either to obey or to disobey. And so part of the reason we go to Brazil, part of the reason we go to New York, part of the reason that we support Lynch and go to Lynch, part of the reason that we have teams that we support and send to Chile is because God in the person of Jesus Christ has told us to go. Here's another reason we do that. It's because in doing that, we're reaching out to some of the most receptive people in the world. We got the numbers back from the Brazil trip last week. You're going to hear more about the Brazil trip in a few weeks. But 150 people gave their life to Jesus last week in Brazil through our team's efforts. Now, if you put those three years combined, okay, now, these kind of things don't show up on the annual church profile that gets sent into Nashville. If you put the last three years combined, we have seen over 500 people accept Jesus Christ in three weeks' time in Brazil. Now, some of you are skeptics out there, and you say, well, but not, now, how many of those are real decisions, Brother Lyle? Well, let's just be really pessimistic. Really pessimistic. Half of them aren't. When we get to heaven, half of those people will not say that those three weeks. That means that we only saw 250 people come to know Christ. Now, to put that in perspective, our church, in sending people to Brazil, we don't 
pay for anybody to go to Brazil, we pay for some ministry costs down there. So out of our budget, our church has spent in the last three years about $30,000 total. Anybody know what our budget is here annually? About a million, okay? So 30000 out of $3 million. Anybody want to do math real quick? Not a big percentage, right? 250 people have accepted Christ. I don't know whether you realize this or not. Even where we live in the United States is one of the least receptive areas in the free world to the gospel of Jesus Christ. People just aren't responding like they once did. Now, there are a lot of reasons for that, and we we got people out there studying. I mean, there, we got the Southern Baptist Convention is trying to figure it out because baptisms declined for this consecutive year, about five years in a row now. Baptisms are down. Membership is down in Southern Baptist churches. And the thing is, we're doing better than almost every other denomination. In fact, what's interesting is some of the most receptive areas in the United States right now, you might know where they are? New York, Boston, Chicago. And so part of the reason we do international, national missions is because we are fulfilling God's call. Part of the reason is that's what he tells us to do, to go to those areas that are receptive. Somebody say, well, that's, that's fine, Brother Lyle. You, you have a heart for Brazil. You have a heart for New York. I've got a heart for Goodlettsville. I've got a heart for Nashville. I've got a heart for Hendersonville. I've got a heart for Greenbrier or White House. And that's good. But if that's all your heart is, then you're missing a large percentage of God's heart. Somebody that even says, I have a heart for the United States and nowhere else, has about 5% of God's heart on their mind. Because God's heart is for the nations. Who are we talking about here? We're talking about people that have never heard. Close to 7 billion people live on this planet. Close to 4.5 to 5 billion aren't believers. And so the task is great. The what is we're to make disciples. The who is to all nations. The when and the where. And this is an interesting thing because this comes straight from the Scripture. It says there, therefore, as you go or in your going or as you live, make disciples. The understanding there is not so much, hey, you go out and you go make disciples. What happens here is it says is as you are going, as you are living, intentionally live with a desire to see people come to know Christ. I don't know why, but for the last few weeks, I've been thinking a lot about my Gramps. Gramps passed away over a year ago. Gramps was one of those spiritual influences in my life. and uh, I was looking through some things. I've been thinking a lot about my grandparents. I was looking through some things with my dad's dad that I never knew. and got thinking about being in Dyersburg and passing... Um, Passing the house where Gramps and Granny lived as long as I've been born, and there's somebody else's truck in the driveway because they've sold the house. It just, you know, makes you think about some things. I couldn't help but think about my granddad, who was one of the finest examples I know of a guy that made disciples as he lived. Now, Gramps grew up in a time when it wasn't feasible to get on a plane and go to Brazil because it just wasn't feasible. 
And they didn't have 24-hour news coverage. He got his news, 30 minutes national news and 30 minutes local news every night. So he didn't know everything that was happening all over the world. He just knew what was happening in Dyersburg, Tennessee. My gramps was a truck driver for Colonial Rubber Works in Dyersburg. He drove a truck from Dyersburg, Tennessee to all 48 contiguous U.S. states at some point in his life. And I remember as a child sitting down and talking to Gramps about his faith and after I became a believer and him talking to me. And Gramps' idea was this radical idea that just whoever he came in contact with, he was going to tell about Jesus. And so down at the shop where it's not, I don't know how many of you have ever been around a truck driving shop, but it is not the most God-friendly place on the planet. All right? Uh, my dad still works there, and he, he says some stories I just won't tell you because you're a preacher. I said, I understand. All right? He, Gramps, had this crazy idea that when he was at a truck stop and there was a guy next to him that was hauling the load, he would just talk to him about Jesus. Again, I don't know how many of you have been in truck stops, but truck stops aren't the most God-friendly places in the world. He just had this idea that whoever he came in contact with, he told about his faith. Now, he was not what you would call a, a hellfire and brimstone evangelism, turn or burn kind of guy. He just told him what Jesus had done for him. Now, here's the thing about my grandfather, though. I, I said he lived in a time when going to Brazil wasn't real feasible, and that was true for most of his life. The first international mission trip sponsored by the Tennessee Baptist Convention, guess who was on a plane to the Philippines? My grandpa's. First person I ever knew that did something like that. It was just part of living. It's not something extra we do. It's not something, oh, i got to make time for this, or, man, i got to start carving out some time to go speak to people about Jesus. It's just what he did. And what Jesus says here, as you're living... As you go, and he says, be intentional about it. Don't, don't say, well, if opportunities come up, be intentional about making opportunities. As you go, make disciples of all nations. And then he gives us the how. It's twofold. It's baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded. We sometimes call this conversion and discipleship, which is a really bad term because according to Matthew chapter 28, all of it is discipleship. The understanding here is that they tell them, we tell them the story of Jesus. We talk about salvation. We tell them how to have faith in Jesus. And then we help them find a place to learn more about what it means to follow him. Now, uh, in Southern Baptist terms, this is often mean. We get them to walk the aisle and then we get them in a Sunday school class. But that's not a complete picture either. The idea here is that we explain who Jesus is, that we tell people who Jesus is, that we help people understand who Jesus is, and then we find them ways through personal teaching, through the teaching of the church, through other resources to help them grow in their faith. Here's the where the rubber eats the road for us. It is almost impossible to tell people about Jesus and how to grow and know knowing Him and loving Him if you yourself aren't knowing Him and loving Him and growing in that. You just can't do it. 
And so it's a continual process. The Great Commission is not just about seeing how many people we can get to walk an aisle. It's not just even in Brazil about seeing how many people can raise their hand or say they accepted Christ. In fact, we changed everything we did in Brazil about five years ago because we realized we were doing a terrible job of teaching them how to follow Jesus. And so now, when they're in Brazil, immediately the local church ties them into a Bible study and they're taught how to follow Jesus. The idea is that we are a people who are helping others to become passionately devoted followers disciples of Jesus Christ. Now, here's the good thing for you. You say, Pastor, that sounds great. I understand it, but I just can't do it. I've thought about it. I've tried it. I get really nervous. I don't know the words that say. I'm scared I'm going to say something wrong. I'm afraid things aren't going to go my way. I'm afraid that if I say something, it'll turn them the other direction. And I would rather not do any harm in that kind of situation. The first thing I would say to you is it's important to understand the context of the Great Commission. Most people, when they quote the Great Commission, they just start with go and make disciples. But that's not what Jesus starts with, right? The first words he says to them are all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, let me just say, how many of you have ever um, told your child to do something and they, instead of not doing it, they ask you why. Remember how that happened? Why, Daddy? Just, just do it. Why? Why, Dad? Because I said so. Because I told you to. Right? Now, what are you calling upon? You're calling upon your authority in that situation as the parent. Luke is in the why phase of questioning. I don't know if y'all have this marked on your calendar tomorrow or not, but it is a national holiday. Luke Larson turns five tomorrow. All right. Luke is in that why all the time. And we were sitting at, at supper one night, and we had the blessing. And, you know, it's one of those rare nights when we were having decent conversation around the table. Everything was happening. They were, weren't any kicking each other under the table or trying to be silly with the food or making sculptures with the mashed potatoes. They were eating and talking. And Luke just said, Daddy, why did God make mommies and daddies the boss? Why can't I ever be the boss? And my words were, that's just the way it is, all right? Well, here's the reality. Jesus says, I've got the authority, every bit of it under heaven. And I'm telling you to go. Why, Jesus? Because I said so. And if that carries any weight from a human parent to a human child, how much more weight does it come from a God who sacrifices life for us? But then at the end of the Great Commission, He gives us this beautiful promise teaching them to obey everything I've commanded, and surely I am with you, even to the very end of the age. I mentioned those other places in Scripture in uh, Luke chapter 24 and John chapter 20 and Acts chapter 1. In every instance, he tells them, don't try this on your own. Don't don't attempt this at home. It's like that... um, 
reminder that comes on one of those shows that has stunts or on a magic show that these are performed by professionals. Do not try this at home. And what Jesus says is, don't try this without me. Listen, let me ask you a question. Knowing all that you know about you, if you were told there was a task force being developed to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ to every nation on the planet, would you choose yourself as an ambassador? And if you say yes, you got some issues. Because knowing anything I know about me, I'd say there are a lot better people out there than me. There are other people more qualified than me. But Jesus says, not with me by your side. You're all a part of it. Let's answer the why. We answer the who, what, when, where, how, why. It's because people need Jesus. If you look at the Bible, here are seven truths. These actually come from the end, from the end of a book by a guy named David Platt, who's a preacher down in Birmingham, but he crystallized them into seven things. I'll just share them with you. First of all, Scripture teaches that all people have a knowledge that God exists, that there is a desire in every human heart for God, that we all know that He exists. Number two, all people reject God. Number three, because of that, all people are guilty before God. Number four, all people are condemned for eternity because of their rejection of God. Number five, the good news is that God has made a way where we don't have to live in that condemnation. Number six, but people cannot come to God or get that condemnation wiped away without Jesus Christ. And number seven, Christ commands the church to make the gospel known. Here's why. Because every person that has ever lived on this planet, every person that is alive today on this planet, without a relationship with Jesus Christ is destined for an eternity separated from Him. That means the Muslim in a country where the gospel of Jesus Christ is not allowed is condemned unto hell. That means the Buddhist in a far eastern country that is closed to the gospel is condemned unto hell. It means that the family in Porto Segura, Brazil, that has statues of religious figures all over their house but does not have a personal relationship with the Lord is condemned unto hell. It means that the people living in Los Angeles, California, that we see on TV and think, man, their lifestyles are deviant without Christ is condemned unto hell. But it also means that the neighbor you see every afternoon when you pick up your mail without a relationship with Jesus Christ is condemned unto heaven. It means that that family member you'll eat Thanksgiving dinner with in just a few months who doesn't have a relationship with the Lord is condemned unto heaven. It means that people that walk into this church week in and week out who don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ are condemned unto heaven. What I want you to think about this morning. Maybe you've got 10, maybe you've got 15, maybe you have got one. I want you to think of someone or some people 
they're without Christ. Or even somebody that you may have a question about. And then I want to ask you this. And I'm not trying to play games or be manipulative in any way. I'm really not. What is so important in that relationship that it is not worth risking their eternity with God? What is so important in your relationship with that person that it's preventing you from sharing the most important thing you know? I mentioned last week the millennial generation, those people born from 1980 to the year 2000. Largest, largest group of people ever born in America. At the moment, 15% of them profess Christ. 15. The study finds an interesting thing. They find that what is happening is those 15% are much more committed than the generations before them. But that the 85% are much more committed against the faith than the generations before them. There's no middle ground. Let me just encourage you as grandparents and as parents. What they're finding is this generation follows the lead of their parents more than any other. And if their parents show real commitment to the Lord, the next generation's even more committed. But if there's only a nominal, we go to church every once in a while or when it's convenient or if other things don't get in the way or faith is important to us, kind of, but we really just kind of live in because that's the way things work. They radically turn away from the faith. So let me ask you a question. Are you passionately devoted to the Lord? And if the answer is yes, then what is preventing you from sharing that with other people? The Lord gave me this thought, and this is what we'll close with. The problem in churches today is that we have taken the greatest privilege that we have in being the very ambassadors of God with the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we've turned it into the biggest burden that we bear. And we sometimes think, oh, I can't believe I've got to do that. Instead of thinking about how unbelievable it is to have the privilege to proclaim Jesus. Before you leave today, I want you to write down the name of that person or persons that you know is without faith or that you question. And then this week, putting faith into practice, doing instead of hearing, I want you to make a concerted effort to share your faith with that person or one of those people in that room.